How's everybody this morning? Hey, it is great to see you. I want to welcome our whole online audience. Great to have you. Welcome all of our Willow locations. Big shout out to my friends in Wheaton, also in Huntley, Crystal Lake, North Shore, South Lake, Chicago. I think I got you all. Uh, great to have everybody together. Uh, as, 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 as we mentioned, we're kicking off a brand new series that we are calling You Are Not Alone. Now, before we dive in there, I was kind of thinking about this, this moment I had not too long ago. It was a few months ago. Uh, I was driving my son and a friend of his to an event that we were hosting right here at Willow Creek. And I knew that his friend lived a little bit a ways away. We live a little bit a ways away from the church. And so I looked at my gas gauge. I knew I was a little bit low. And so I did what we do. I did the quick little mathematical calculation in my head as far as the amount of distance I had to travel, the amount of gas I had left. And based on my superior math skills, I knew I was going to be fine. And so Austin and I got in the car. We drove to pick up his buddy. We got him. And on our way to the church... This, my gas light came on. Now, in my car, it's a, it's a yellow gas light at first. And what that means to me is, hey, Sean, run a little low. Maybe you should consider sometime in the next, I don't know, seven days, you probably need to put some gas in the car. And so I saw the light. I acknowledged it. But again, because of my sophisticated math skills, I knew I was going to be just fine. So we made our way to the church uh, our, my, my, my son, his friend, they just had a blast at the junior high event that was created. And then we got back in our car to, to go back home. Now, on our route home, my car's gas light turned from yellow to red. Now, that's my car's way of saying, listen, moron, I've already told you once to put some gas in the car and you didn't listen. So let me just make the warning just a little bit more clear for you. You need to stop and put gas in the car. And I thought, that's probably a good idea. However, there's, a, there's a, another way I can determine things in my car. There's the whole gauge that tells you miles to empty. You know what I'm talking about? And so I went to the little miles to empty gauge. I looked at the number of miles to empty to the number of miles I had to go home. And I'm like, my math is superb. I'm golden. No problem. I knew I was going to have to get gas the next day, but I was going to have no problem getting home. So we just charted our course home. Now, I was watching that miles to empty, and for some reason it was decreasing faster than the miles I was actually traveling to get home. And so I was about a mile away from home when the miles to empty went to zero. But everybody knows that doesn't actually mean zero, right? I mean, usually when it's miles to zero, we know we still have another, I don't know, three, five, seven, 27 miles. I don't know. I felt like I still had a little bit of time to go. I was only about a mile from home. Surely there's a little mile left of gas in the tank. And I, with confidence, kept pursuing the route to home, and I made, I made it about another 100 yards before everything shut down in my car, and I was completely stalled out in a five-lane road in the middle of the street. And so I had to make the call of shame, is what I call it, to my wife, to say, hey, babe, remember how I was on my way home? Uh, I'm going to need you to come bail me out, right? And so she had to bring gas to me, and I had to, you know, uh, uh, eat the little humble pie on the rest, of the, the, the rest of the day. Now, I look back at that story, and I can laugh a little bit about it, but it's amazing how in my confidence I ignored so many warning signs that told me, Sean, you need to refuel. But for whatever reason, I thought I knew better, and I ignored every single one of them along the way. Now, it's one thing to do that when it comes to the gas gauges of your car. It's another thing that we do that when it comes to how we choose to live our lives. 
And so many times when it comes to the lives that we live, there are certain warning signs that go off that tell us uh, you might need to take a step. You might need to do something different. You might need to seek out some help. But even though those warning signs go off within us, oftentimes we do nothing about it. Uh, I was talking to a counselor friend a a number of years ago, and they, they said this to me. They said, many times we know in the therapy world that people respond to physical things going on in their life far before they respond to any kind of mental or emotional thing going on in their life. They said, actually, the the average time between the the moment somebody experiences something going on with their heart that's not right to the time that they actually call a cardiologist is about three to five days on average. That feels like a lot of time when you're you're, you're messing with heart-related issues. But they said, you compare that to what goes on with us uh, mentally or emotionally, when, when you first sense that something's not quite right, whether not quite right mentally or emotionally within yourself, something not quite right within your marriage, maybe not quite right when it comes to some addictive type behavior, but the moment that we experience something mentally or emotionally that's not quite right from the moment that we actually seek out help for it, many times on average it's as much as three to five years. So three to five days when it comes to physical concerns, but many times three to five years or maybe even more when it comes to mental and emotional things, oftentimes the warning lights are going off, but we don't don't respond to how God's hardwired us to take the next step or maybe reach out for help. Now what, what complicates matters even more is we've just been through an intense couple of years as an entire society. I mean, really, the entire world just endured a a, a two-plus-year pandemic. I'd like to think it's in a rearview mirror, but I'm not 100% sure it is, right? Like, maybe in some ways, we're still actually enduring it. And and if you look at any of the statistics of what's played out within our country, not only do we experience some sort of physical pandemic, you could argue we're also experiencing a mental and an emotional pandemic. It It has wreaked havoc on our hearts and on our souls, on our emotions, and what we've experienced. Uh, the Kaiser Foundation uh, released some statistics recently about really what it's been like to live in our society the last couple of years. And they, they, they said this, they said one out of every two people is experiencing some sort of mental or emotional challenge. One out of every two. That means it's either you or the person sitting next to you. Uh, Real quickly, no matter what campus uh, you're at, whether you're at home on your couch, whether you're in the room, turn to the person next to you and say, if it's not you, it's me. If it's not you, it's me. And some of you are just turning and goes, I know it's me. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's where we're at. So we're, we're just experience really an unprecedented situation that we've never experienced in, in our, our lifetimes. Uh, This same foundation, this same study says that every statistical category has increased. Divorce rates are up. Domestic abuse cases are up. Uh, Heightened levels of anxiety and depression are at an all-time high. Uh, Even when it comes to uh, suicide attempts or suicide rates are up. Uh, New addictions are forming. Old addictions are resurfacing. What we're experiencing, I would say, would be a mental health or emotional health crisis. Now, candidly speaking, the church has not always been on the front end of this conversation. Uh, maybe the church has not done a good job of addressing it at all. And that's really why we wanted to have this particular series, a series that's really going to be focused on our mental and emotional health that we'll be in for the next few weeks. And some of you go, we're going to do four weeks on mental health. That feels like a downer. I promise you, it won't be a downer. 
Uh, because I think that the, to it, when we dive into God's word, I think that there is help and I think that there is hope. And I hope that you leave every single week uplifted and encouraged, even if we're facing and having conversations around difficult things. The series title is simply this, You Are Not Alone. You're not alone. And really there's two different things we think about with the series title. I want you to know that whatever you're personally experiencing, whatever challenges that you're facing... You're not the only one in this room. You're not the only one at your campus. You're not the only one on who's experiencing it. It is a collective experience. You're not alone. We're all experiencing it at some level together. But I also want you to know that the most frequent commandment in all of Scripture, God says, do not be afraid. And he always, almost always couples that commandment with a promise because he says, because I will be with you. And the other truth is we're not alone because we're all experiencing it, but the other truth is we're not alone because God says he is with us. He is in it with us. And because of that, there is help, there is hope. Now, some of us may be sitting there and saying, well, what does my mental or emotional health have anything to do with my spiritual formation? And I would argue it has everything to do with your spiritual formation. Uh, You can talk about this from multiple different angles, but the one that occurs to me uh, very clearly comes to us from what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. You familiar with that? Uh, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to what? It's fundamentally to love God. Now, when, when Jesus quoted it in the New Testament, he's quoting an Old Testament passage that would have been known by every Jewish person back in the, old, uh, back in the first century. Uh, they were quoting this part of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's, it's called the Shema, and it's the first place we read about this commandment of loving God. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Now, here's what's interesting. When Jesus is quoting the Shema, the greatest commandment, notice Jesus adds a phrase that wasn't in the original Shema. Here's what it is. This is Jesus talking, Mark chapter 12, quoting Deuteronomy 6, he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that sounds familiar, with all your soul, that sounds familiar, and then with all your what? With all your mind and with all your strength. Do you see if you put the two verses together and you look at them, Jesus adds the phrase, love God with all of your mind. Your mind is so important when it comes to our spiritual formation and who we are. So much so that Jesus actually calls it out. You look later in the New Testament, part of our spiritual formation, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, we experience spiritual transformation by the renewing of our mind. That our mind, our heart, become such incredible components of our spiritual formation. It's so important to us. And so in order to have this conversation, I want to take us to a a part of the Bible that maybe you've heard this story before if you've been around church for a long time, but maybe for many of us this will be brand new, this will be a brand new narrative. But we're going to go to the book of Numbers chapter 20. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the fourth book of the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament. Or if you like to use version on your phone, uh, feel feel, feel free to pull up the Bible app or the, 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 the words will show up on the screen as well. Now, in this story, let me give you a little bit of context. I'm actually going to tell you the story, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at it in detail. So the story is simply this. you got a guy named Moses. He's God's man. He's God's leader. He's done some amazing things. He's led God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt. 
ultimately, God tells them he's going to lead the people to this land that God had promised them. That they're going to uh, establish that land. It's going to be their own land, their own country. They're going to be established as a nation. But in between Egypt and the promised land is a lot of wandering around in the desert. They wandered around for 40 years. Now this is toward the end of that 40-year wilderness journey. We get to Numbers chapter 20, and they, they roll up to this place in the desert that there's no water. There are hundreds of thousands, if not well over a million Israelite people, and they roll up to this area that there's no water to drink. That's a problem. And so the people bring that problem to Moses. Like, Moses, we got a, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. And so Moses responds by taking that problem to God, asking God, what do you want me to do about it? God tells him three things. He says, I want you to go get your staff, the staff of the Lord. He says, number two, I want you to assemble the entire nation of people. And then number three, I want you to speak to the rock. And out of that rock, water's going to come out. It's almost like God's just going to show off. He could have said, hey, why don't you go to the river and get something to drink? Or here, I'm going to send some rain for you. But no, God says, I'm going to take you to the most absurd place, a rock, and I'm going to make water come out of the rock. And so Moses almost got it right when he executes God's plan. He went and got the staff, the staff of the Lord. Step one, check. He assembles the entire nation of people together. Step two, check. But when it comes to the third step, if you read in Numbers chapter 20, he doesn't speak to the rock. Instead, he strikes the rock. Now, God eventually sends the water out of the rock and so that people uh, were able to drink it. But, but God and Moses are maybe not on the best terms after the moment. And actually, it's because of Moses' response in that third category that God actually tells Moses he's not able to take the people into the promised land. Now, for years and years, I've known this story, but it's always felt like God's punishment for Moses' crime felt like they didn't match. I mean, sure, God told him to speak to it. He ends up striking it. Like, I get it. Technically, it was in the category of disobedience. But it feels like a pretty extreme punishment to not let this guy lead the people into promised land after leading them out of slavery, after wandering for 40 years. That feels highly punitive for what I look like doesn't feel like too drastic of an offense. And so I've always wrestled with that. That's never really made a lot of sense to me. And you read just about every commentary about this passage, everybody will say Moses didn't get to go to the promised land because Moses was disobedient to God. And maybe that's true. But maybe there's more to the story. I want to take us back through the story, and I want, to, I, want you to, I want to call your attention to a couple of details that I'd never seen before before really diving into this text. I want to make an argument that I think Moses was actually struggling with his mental and emotional health, and rightly so, because he was carrying so much weight. Here's the first weight that Moses was carrying. He was carrying the weight of loss. You, you see it in Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. It says, in the, month of, in the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. Miriam was, was Moses' sister. Now, they journeyed together for decades. And so Moses has experienced loss. Have you ever experienced loss? Have you? Loss is hard. Especially if the loss is really, really close to home. Uh, some of you ex have experienced a lot of loss in the last two to three years. 
And you know how heavy of a weight it's been to carry. Uh, it's interesting about my own journey is I haven't experienced a lot of loss of life, uh, loss in life, really until the past two to three years. I've experienced more loss in the last two to three years than I probably have in the previous 40 some odd combined. And so I lost my, my grandma, my father-in-law, lost a, a couple of good friends in their 30s to cancer. It's been a, it's been a really tough couple of years. And some of you, you understand because you know you've experienced, you know the weight of it and how heavy grief is at times. Uh, I describe grief a lot of times as standing on, a, on, on, the, on the shoreline and that a wave just comes and hits you. That's how grief, that's how I experience grief, that a lot of times I feel just fine and then a wave of, of, of grief will just crash into you. It can be a really heavy weight. And I wonder if Moses was carrying the weight of loss, but I don't think it was the only weight that he was carrying. Uh, I think he was also carrying the weight of uncertainty. Here's what we, we see next in the next verse. Again, they roll up to the, the area and it says that there was no water for the people to drink at that place. Uh, have you ever been at a place that you didn't know where some basic practical needs were going to come from? I mean, those, those are moments of, of intense fear, of, of intense certainty. Maybe you don't know where your next meal is going to come from to feed, uh, to, to feed your kids. Uh, maybe because of the pandemic, you got into a place that that you didn't know if your job was going to make it through. You didn't know if your company was going to make it through. Uh, you didn't know if you were going to make it through. Uh, some of you may have underlying health conditions, and so there was all kinds of uncertainty that if I was going to contract the virus, what, is, what does that mean to my own life? And so we lived the last two to three years with a level of uncertainty and a level of fear that we've never had to face at those levels before. And so if you've ever experienced that, you, you know the uncertainty of it. When, when Moses rolls up with the entire nation that he's responsible for and he can't provide one of the most basic needs, the level of fear and uncertainty that no doubt is a weight that you begin to carry can be incredibly debilitating. So I would argue that Moses was carrying a, a weight of loss. He was carrying a weight of uncertainty. But he also endured what I would describe as a weight of criticism. Uh, that because they were facing these things, Moses' as leader was actually blamed for the problem. Here's what it says. These are the people talking to Moses. If, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die along with our livestock? Why, why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us to this terrible place? I mean, they're just going after Moses. There's, there's another uh, translation that actually says, Moses, did you just bring us here to die? And I kind of wish Moses had the spiritual gift of sarcasm so that he would just go, oh, you caught me. You're right. I stuck my neck, my neck out for you uh, in the presence of Pharaoh. I put my life on the line for you in order to get you out of slavery. I, I, I parted the Red Sea for you all so I could get you to this place so that you would die. You caught me. That's totally what I've been up to this whole time. Now, thankfully, he didn't have the spiritual gift of sarcasm like I do in certain moments. But nobody likes to be the object of criticism. Nobody likes to be blamed for things that are, that are out of your control. Have you, ever been, have you ever been sharply criticized? Have you ever been sharply and publicly criticized? It's brutal. And it's an incredibly heavy weight that we carry. And I would argue that Moses has carried this weight for likely the better part of the 40 years wandering around the desert. This wasn't the first time this has played out. He's been carrying this weight for a long time. 
And there's the whole proverbial statement about the straw that broke the camel's back. I would argue this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so look what what Moses does in the face of holding the weight of loss and uncertainty and criticism. (laughs) Here's here's what he does. So so Moses did as he was told. Again, he took it to God. God, what do you want me to do? Do those three things. It says Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Step one, check. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather uh, gather at the rock. Step two, check. But notice what he does. Step three. It wasn't just about striking the rock versus speaking to the rock. Look what he does. He says, listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice. Bam! Bam! And the the water eventually gushed out. It says, so the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if the issue was not just that Moses struck the rock versus speaking to it. I wonder if in this moment it paints the picture that Moses, Moses didn't just lose his temper. Moses didn't just lose his marbles. But in doing so, Moses actually lost his credibility as a leader. Because he blew a gasket in front of the entire nation. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if the reason why God told him he couldn't go into the promised land is not because God was being punitive. It's because in losing his temper in marbles in front of the entire community, Moses lost his credibility as a leader. He was no longer a leader that the people were willing to follow. And so God had to raise up a new leader to take him to the promised land. Here's why that matters and what's at stake. I think for many of us, myself included, I'm guilty of ignoring the warning signs and pushing things down and compartmentalizing things and not really dealing with the pain and the pressure and the weight that we sometimes experience in life. And because I don't deal with it, because I don't process it, it eventually comes out in a way that I wish it didn't come out in that way. It comes out sideways in some way. I would go as far to say this. My belief is this, that if you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will inevitably transfer your pain. Can I say that again for the people in the back? That if you don't allow God to transform your pain, you will inevitably transfer your pain. And so that's why our mental and emotional health, it's one of the reasons why our mental and emotional health is so incredibly important. It's important to learn how do we, in a healthy way, process our pain, process our experience, process our fear and anxiety, and take a helpful next step so that we can be healthy and honor God in everything that we say and do. A lot of our sideways things are not even the issue. They're the symptom of the greater concern. Now, let me be candid. I'm a pastor and not a therapist. Uh, I I don't claim to have the insight on on all the right next steps, and so I invited a couple of friends of mine to come and join me. And so if you would welcome Shoji and Eric, they're going to come and and, and help us out with this next next part of the message. 
It is great to have both of you. Uh, everybody, this is, this is Shoji Bolt. She's a good friend. I've uh, been around Willow for a long, long time. This is Eric Connor, uh, also been an attender of Willow for a really long time. Both are professional licensed therapists. Uh, I've had some of these conversations with them this week, and I just asked they would come and shed a little bit about their expertise uh, into this conversation today. So Shoji, we've been talking a little bit about the, the triggers that sometimes we experience or the things that are like the, 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 the warning signs going off. How do we become people who recognize those and recognize what ours are and then learn how to take a healthy next step with it? That is a great question and is actually a very personal question for me because there was a season in my life where the weight of loss, uncertainty, failure, pressure, created anxiety, depression, and even a chronic illness called lupus. So I have learned the hard way that it is really hazardous to ignore the signs. Uh, so the first step in addressing mental health is self-awareness, and the second step is self-care. So to understand the warning signs, it helps to take a holistic approach, just like Jesus taught us. In psychology, we consider it the bio, psycho, social, and I would add spiritual model. We can assess our mental health by evaluating these components in our life. So the first one is biology, and really simply, that's about your body. So what is your body telling you? The emotions that stem from stress and trauma are carried in our body and it can manifest into mental illness and disease. So self-care really means some of the basics, like how much water am I drinking? Am I sleeping and resting? What is my nutrition and exercise like? Am I managing stress and resting? And is there pain literally in my body that I need to actually check out? And this was critical for my own recovery. So the second component is psychology. So psychology involves our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So over our lifetime, we develop thoughts about ourselves and about the world based on our experiences. So negative thoughts actually produce difficult and painful emotions, which also produce maladaptive behaviors like addictions. Um, the scripture, as Sean referred to, says to take every thought captive and make it um, obedient to Christ. It also says be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we do that? Philippians 4.8 says, think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Anything that is excellent and praiseworthy. Think about these things. And when we don't take care of our mind, our worry turns to anxiety. Our sadness turns to depression. Our frustrations turn to rage and resentment. And honestly, we can't do this work all on our own. There is great wisdom in asking for help, especially in this category. Now, the th uh, third component is the social component. This is really important because it is part of our biology as well, because we come into this world looking for a face and looking for a voice. So 
Currently, our social component includes our family, our friends, and our work environment. Um, we are actually considered the most connected generation in history. But we are also the most isolated because most of our connection is through our devices. Um, clinicians, as clinicians, we have seen a rise an epidemic of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, even before the pandemic, and especially in teens and young adults. And we need to be able to understand how are we connecting? How are we um, in, your, in our relationships? How are we enduring? What are the dynamics at home? Are you more irritable? Are you short-fused? How are your social connections? Our relationships, our attachments, um, as attachments, have a biological impact in wiring our brain and for creating our capacity to endure stress and trauma. So I would say my one recommendation is make a meaningful connection every single day. That's good. That's really good. You know, Eric, I was, I was, I'm probably wrestling with this personally, but I'm interested to get your, your insight on it. So uh, I'm somebody who, for a lot of years, I just hid my pain. Yeah. Why, why is that our tendency to hide it? And why can't we find any healing in hiding? Yeah, that's also a great question, Sean. Um, so th there's a lot of reasons why we don't share our pain, share our suffering. I want to focus on two that I see over and over, and actually are true for me, too. The first reason we often don't share about what's going on is that if we're honest, we actually feel a lot of shame about the pain that we're experiencing. There's a part of me that can tell myself, like, you shouldn't be experiencing this. You should be past this. Um, this is your fault. Why would you burden others? Uh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe God's not happy with me. Essentially, sometimes in our suffering, I think I'm less than, and I think I'm defective. So I want to hide that. Why would I want to talk about that? Instead, I want to show up and think everyone thinks I'm fine and I'm okay, but I'm not. Uh, the second thing that I see is that a lot of us, it was never modeled to us that you go to people to get your needs met. Instead, I think a lot of us, we grew up that like you take care of your problems on your own. And um, you figure it out, don't be a burden, and um, then you just kind of keep going with your life. Now, that would be okay if it actually worked, <laughs> but it, it doesn't work. Um, the same level of consciousness that creates our problems often can't solve it. And in fact, sometimes we're creating these little compartments to try to deal with our pain, and those are the beginning of having secret lives or the beginning of, of having pockets where we're trying to kind of numb ourselves, and that can get really dangerous over time. It seems like God has, um, from the beginning, is trying to teach us we need each other. And now science is confirming. There's a term we use in therapy. It's called co-regulation. It means that by sharing our pain, sharing like our vulnerability with another person, it's almost like the two nervous systems get in sync and they uh, provide healing for each other. That's the way out of suffering. And it first starts with kind of, you know, being able to kind of open up and talk about what's really going on inside of us. And if you look at some of the, the models that are very successful, like 12-step addiction recovery and some other things, they're really predicated on telling your whole story. Take it from someone that's done it, it's really scary. 
but when you do it, there's a huge release. So I'd say the first thing we have to think about, and maybe like the challenge for all of us is, can we find someone to begin to talk to about what's going on? We're all okay. And I think our suffering or our shame tells us we're not, but we are. We just have to begin to kind of talk to people about it. That's good. That's good. Uh, let me shift gears just a little bit, Shoji. When, when, uh, you know, when we talk about it from a clinical or psychological perspective, sometimes there's not always a faith component, but obviously being in this setting, we, we believe a lot about the help and hope comes from God. So tell me the role that faith plays in our healing journey. Well, this is the spiritual component I referred to in the model that I described earlier. Also called, um, it's called soul care. So research actually shows that faith has a positive effect on psychological health. Uh, religious involvement and your attachment to God are, are really shown to be beneficial. How we attach to God, are we avoidant, anxious, or are we secure with him? And what we believe about his nature, is he loving, is he caring, or is he distant? That all impacts how we navigate stress and trauma and the ability to sustain our health. So we have resilience through our faith. And like Sean described, collectively, we have endured trauma for the last two years. And I happened to read the book, um, A Grief Observed by uh, C.S. Lewis. And it describes the heart-wrenching sadness and fear, as well as anger with God that he experienced in his loss. And maybe you have felt that way as well. Um, and it's okay, and it's necessary to acknowledge our emotions and to grapple with faith and doubt in your grief. Um, it is so important to seek out opportunities to be in the presence of God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, God says, you will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. We seek him by making room and time to be in his loving presence through prayer, and we renew our mind through meditating on his word. Uh, knowing that God is good and that he, is, he loves us, he loves us as individually is an essential aspect of um, being secure in him and uh, even if we doubt sometimes. So the power, presence, and the plans of Jesus really transcends our circumstances, and that's been true in my life. So after being sick for 20 long years, I, I can say I am healed. Mm. You know, while I longed for that healing, thank you, for a long time, I don't really regret the 20 years in which God did his work in me, and he formed me. He was present with me, and he created me as a vessel to carry out his grace and his compassion in this world. That's so good, Shoji. Thank you. Thank you for your heart and your vulnerability to sharing your story, because we can connect our story within your, your story, so thank you for that gift. Uh, you know, Eric, Shoji's talking a little bit about our relationship with God and the impact that has on our healing journey, but you were speaking earlier about our connection to others as well. Talk more about, the, talk more about what that looks like, how we develop that with, with one another. And then the second piece that would be this, uh, we, we're big into the group's environment around here, and we have a lot of group leaders who are watching. And so what are the types of things we need to think about within a group's environment that create the healthy context for what you're describing to really thrive? Yeah, sure. So 
you know, I think in terms of the relationships we have, in terms of what's going to be helpful for our mental health, um, there's a need for us to kind of become vulnerable with other people. We actually connect much more uh, deeply in our vulnerability and in our weaknesses than we do in our strengths. Now, in order to be vulnerable with someone, we have to feel like that person is emotionally safe. And what do I mean by emotionally safe? It just means that if I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to kind of show you what's inside of me and the parts I don't want to talk about, my hope is that um, you won't minimize it, you won't make me uh, feel worse about it, you won't reject it, you won't abandon me. Right. So to be vulnerable, it, it should be a safe place, whatever the context for that. The other thing that's really important is, um, I think what really connects people is when we learn how to have empathy for each other. Uh, there's a, a kind of a famous researcher out there, uh, Brene Brown. She's done a lot of research around the power of vulnerability. And she has some great talks around sympathy versus empathy. And what I realized is I was actually doing sympathy for a lot of years. I'm not trying to do empathy. But she says sympathy is almost where we hear someone else's struggle or what they're going through. And while well-meaning, we kind of stand apart from it, almost like we're looking at you and what you're going through and maybe in our head, we're like, wow, that's really hard for you. Kind of glad I'm not there. Um, but we're not, like, we're not connected. Empathy is where I'm going like, to literally try to get into your shoes. And I'm going to think about what is that like for you. It's like I'm going to kind of get into the little cave you might be in. And I'm going to sit with you. And I'm going to think about, have I been through anything that's like that? Empathy is a competency. We don't just intuitively know how to do it, but if we can start to learn to do that in relationships and even in groups, it's hugely connecting. Uh, we know from research it heals, and it also normalizes our pain so that we realize really deeply we're not alone. So, you know, I think I've been leading groups for some years, and so in the groups that I bring together, um, it's usually with men, and they're very compartmentalized. They've got secret lives. And so what I try to do is create uh, an environment that's very safe and very supportive. And we also practice what we call unconditional positive regard. It means I don't have to agree with you, but I will have positive regard for what you are going through, and I will not judge it. And if we can create a group that's like that, these guys start to just instinctively open up. And once that starts to happen, I always see healing. So when I think about effective small groups, we have, there's great education. I love being in a group with like great biblical studies. And we have great, you know, content coming up. But for me, I like to be part of a group where I know I can be vulnerable, and I know that they know me, and I know that they'll have unconditional positive regard for what I'm going through. I've been the guy in groups that sometimes like share something really deep, and then I'm like, and it's just crickets. And then I'm like, I really wish I hadn't shared that. Yeah. So, um, you know, so th we have to be careful about who we do it with. But as we form groups here, if we can have that sense of sharing, um, it's a big deal. And then once that's there, all the content and all that is just then fuel for the groups. And honestly, when you're in groups like that, they are quite literally therapeutic. Um, and they're just a real gift. So that's kind of the hope for some of the groups that I see forming here. That's so good. Thank you so much. Uh, could you express your appreciation to Shoji, Eric? Thanks for being here. Thanks for how well you serve people. Uh, grateful for, for each one of you. So what do we do? Like, like what's, our, what's our next step? 
Uh, I had the opportunity to attend the Global Leadership Summit. One of the speakers was a guy by the name of John Acuff, and, and he talked a little bit about the playlists that play in our minds. And, 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 and the playlists typically define, and the, if we listen to them, they, they kind of tell us who we are. And as I was listening to him talk, I, I started thinking a little bit about that, and I thought, you know what, playlists are not really a new thing. So, you know, those of you who are young people that, that, that know how to build a playlist, it's just simply like hitting a plus button. Uh, back in the day, we made playlists, we just called them mixtapes. Anybody 40 years and older, like you know what a mixtape is, right? Now, back in my junior high days, I was a pretty impressive mixtape artist. I might have been the original Sir Mix-a-Lot, if I'm not mistaken. Now, now, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know, back in the day, to cue up a mixtape was, it was a little bit more complicated than just hitting the plus button and adding the next song. You needed a dual cassette stereo. And you had to take a stack of tapes that contained the songs that you were wanting to record, and you had to have a blank tape. You put the blank tape in one of the cassette tape players, and then you put the first cassette that you wanted to find the song. You had to fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind, 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 fast forward, until you queue up the exact moment. You remember this? And then when you had it all queued up, you had to hit the record and the play button at just the same time in order to record that song over. And when that song was over, you had to stop it just at the same time so that you could repeat the process and do the next song. To do a playlist back in the day, it was a commitment, right? Now, I was, I was committed as a junior hire because I put together these love song playlists that I wanted to give to the ladies. And my thought is if I could get them to listen to this playlist over and over and over again, they would realize their undying affection for yours truly, right? That's the power of a, of a playlist. Now, now, the reason why that was is actually most of my pain and my story start from, start from those years. Let you in a little window of my story. Uh, for those of you who know me well, you know that I'm not the largest human being you've ever come across. I know on camera I look swole, just so you know I'm not, okay? Now, when I was young, I was real little. Uh, my freshman year of high school, I was 4'8", 85 pounds. Forced to be reckoned with, I was. Now, you can imagine being that small of a kid. I was the target of a lot of bullying, um, a, lot, a lot of harsh things back in that season. I spent a fair share of my time in, in lockers, trash cans, those types of things. Now, I don't tell you that so you'll feel sorry for me. I really don't. I tell you that because I just say we all have a story, right? And we all have a story that there's pain that, that, that's a part of our story. Now, to be candid with you, I didn't process that pain at all because uh, I didn't want people to think that they were getting to me at all. I felt like if they knew that they were getting to me, then, then they might continue it. And so I always put up a strong face. I always put on a, a good look for, for everyone. And then I discovered my freshman year of high school, I found an extracurricular activity that I found some success in. And for those of you who are Enneagram people, I'm an Enneagram 3. I love to achieve. I love to accomplish things. And I was committed to accomplish my way out of pain. And I did that for about 25 years. Never dealt with pain. Never faced it. Pushed it down. Compartmentalized it. Put it aside. I did nothing with it. And that was until about 2016, when life no longer became manageable for me. Um, it, the best way I know how to describe it is sometimes life gets tied in knots, and you know how to untie the knots? 
I couldn't untie the knots anymore. And so for the very first time in my life, I sought out a therapist. Uh, incredible man. I call him Yoda to this day. Uh, the guy's brilliant. Uh, but one of the things that he had me do is he said, write out, like, what's your defense mechanism? Like, what do you do? And so I described what I just described to you that, you know, Doc, with the best of them, I can compartmentalize, I can push down, I can act like nothing's done. I think I have my PhD in suppressing pain. And then he looked at me and he said, Sean, how's that working for you? And I thought about it for a second, and I said with all honesty and transparency, Doc, I actually think it's working pretty well. Uh, I, I think I've actually managed pretty well for a long time. And he looked at me and he said, if you really believe that, you were a fool. And for whatever reason, God used that moment to begin a new trajectory for my journey. I've been on a journey. I'm not there yet. But I've been on a journey toward much more health, wholeness, authenticity, honesty, what I would say like emotional health. I am a shell of the kid I used to be. I'm actually a shell of the man that I was six years ago, seven years ago. However, though I'm much more healthy today than I've ever been, the realization is there are still moments that trigger 30-year-old wounds for me. And maybe you can resonate with that. Because isn't it true sometimes when we go, go all Moses on a situation, when we lose our, our marbles about whatever's going on or we kind of lose our composure, many times it has, it's not all about what happened in that moment. It's because it triggers all the other stuff that we, ever, we haven't fully processed in our journey. I'm learning to process it. I'm learning to be more whole. I'm learning to be more healthy. But part of what's helped shape me is to have a new playlist running in my mind. For years, the playlist was, nobody likes you. Nobody cares about you. You don't really matter. What's amazing about those playlists is that we believe that garbage to be true. And for me, I needed to begin to see my life through a different lens. Not through the lens that I looked through. The truth is, some of the thoughts that come to our mind can't be trusted. Some of the thoughts that come to our mind are lies. And I had to begin to see my life through God's lens. What does God see in me? What does God say about me? I needed a new playlist. I needed a new phrase that would circle in my heart, in my life. And so here's the reality. When I was a junior higher into probably my 30s, that was my playlist. I'm not there yet, but here's my new playlist. Now, just so you know, my confidence is not in me. My confidence is the one who created me. It's a new playlist. What's yours?